Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Dustin DePerna, Harvard-trained scholar of world religions, meditation teacher, and author of several books, including Streams of Wisdom, Evolution's Ally, and Earth is Eden. Dustin and I spoke about a host of topics, including his brief foray into the fashion industry as a young man, which led to his attempt to become a monk at an ashram in India, which led to his years of study with philosopher Ken Wilber. I somehow convinced Dustin to explain integral theory to me, no small task, and even lead us through a short meditation. I so enjoyed my time with Dustin, and I'm quite sure you will find him a worthwhile resource as well. Okay, so welcome everybody, and this is Dustin DiPerna. I want to start by just thanking the Esalen community and Sam in particular for providing the space to do this podcast. And as Sam and I were speaking before the show, I had an impulse to invite all the listeners to turn this podcast into a practice. So we'll do some micro practices throughout the next 45 minutes or an hour, but it's also true that we can bring a particular quality of attention to the entire podcast itself. So my recommendation would be to find a space where you can listen to this podcast where you're not distracted. So I know our usual tendency is to listen to podcasts while we're driving, to listen to podcasts when we're you know, busy with partial attention, but just for fun, just this once, you know, there are 30 or 40 other podcasts you could listen to from Esalen, but just for this one, try to make this a spiritual practice. So what would it be like to give your full undivided attention moment by moment to the sounds of Sam's voice and my voice? If you're feeling adventurous, you could even sit up in a meditation posture and then see if you can listen with your whole body. So we have a tendency to listen with just our ears in some sort of mental way. But the depth of dialogue that can occur here and occur elsewhere is really something that can be a full body transmission and reception. And in that way, we can turn our whole bodies into the vehicle of exchange. So with these basic principles of just giving full attention, listening with our whole body, and taking the view that this next 45 minutes to an hour is a spiritual practice, it will set the frame for us to really engage in an authentic and real way together. So thank you for giving me that opportunity, Sam, to start off in this way. Dustin, I wanted to start off by asking you sort of to define what it is that you do. I know that you do uh, several things and they are intertwined. So I wanted to ask for you to start off just sort of with that um, definition. Great. So I think I found it easy to describe my life and what I offer through metaphor. And then I'll describe maybe a bit more specific detail. So if anybody were to tell me to go to a stream and to drink from a stream, I'd want to know where the source of the stream was and I'd want to know what the content of the water was. So I think the best place to start to answer that question is just to tell you a little bit about the source of my stream uh, so that people know where I'm coming from. And then I'll share with you a bit about how I share in the world. So there are two or three major streams that flow through me. 
when I was in my uh, early 20s, I began studying with an American philosopher named Ken Wilber. And Ken Wilber developed something called integral theory. And Ken was really my first root teacher in a lot of ways. You know, publicly, Ken doesn't describe himself as a teacher. He describes himself as a philosopher. But uh, in my relationship with him, he really served as a, an incredible mentor and friend and, and teacher. So I'd say the first part of the stream runs from a source that's sourced through my relationship with Ken and integral theory. I've also, over the past 10 or 15 years, studied with someone named Daniel P. Brown. And Dan Brown is both a professor at Harvard Medical School, and he's also been studying with the Tibetans, studying meditation practice for almost 50 years. And so another key element of the streams that flow through me come from Dan Brown and the Tibetan traditions and some of the clinical psychology work that Dan's practiced and taught to me. And then finally, my own studies. I've studied in graduate school at Harvard and did a lot of deep contemplation and work and exploration of my own psyche. And I've been synthesizing practices and teachings uh, for as long as I can remember, since I was a young kid. I've always been interested in the deeper dimensions of life and reality. And so, you know, there are many other streams, but I would say the streams of Ken Wilbur and Dan Brown, my own studies at Harvard and my own sort of deep reading and practice are like the main three streams that flow, flow through me. So, you know, I often say that they're pretty good streams. Uh, not that you should trust that just by the words that I say, but hopefully it gives some encouragement to listen, perhaps explore what I'm saying, to try it out in your own experience. At least that's my hope. So your, your question was, what do, I, what do I do in the world? Who am I? What am I up to? I think primarily because in my own life I've been through so much uh, discomfort and suffering and through so much pain that early in my life I really started trying to find something that was worth taking refuge in. Mm. Um, you know, I quickly learned that it wasn't family, it wasn't sort of the usual things like money and success that people find refuge in. I just realized there had to be something real. There had to be something that I could really find that would be worth giving my all to. And I discovered these ancient wisdom traditions when I was young, in my teens, and I began reading the Upanishads and these Eastern texts and then reading some of our Western wisdom. And I was just blown away because I felt like these teachings were giving me a new sense of hope and being and spaciousness and freedom in my own life. So what I committed to doing right around that time was that I would learn as much as I could about as many traditions as I could. I would learn as many practices as I could, not only for my own benefit, but so that I could begin sharing those with others so that I could offer something to people that they could take true refuge in. And, uh, you know, it's been an amazing journey and I keep learning. I think I'll forever be a student. Hopefully I've learned some good stuff that I can share with people. That's my hope. I've been hearing the name Ken Wilbur for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if it's possible to walk me through sort of like integral theory for dummies. Yeah, it's such a good question. You know, people approach Ken's work and people ask questions about it. And then someone hands them a stack of like 15 books, you know, <laughs> and like each of them is 500 pages. And it's really it's a hard nut to crack from the outside. But um, I do think it's possible to crack. So let me let me take a shot at just giving some uh, uh sort of simple explanations. Okay, then I'll ask you to do Dan Brown, then you can do yours and we'll be done. Okay, amazing, this is perfect, this is perfect. 
So one of the easiest ways, I think, to try to articulate Ken's work and, um, you know, I'll just give my impression of Ken's work rather than speaking for him. He would probably have his own takes and probably even maybe even critiques of how I'd explain it. But I think this is one of the ways it really works for me is that if you take all of the cumulative wisdom that we have across all epics of time as a human species and across different civilizations and across different religious and spiritual traditions and you put it all on a table and then you begin looking for patterns about what does it mean to be human? Where are there patterns or similarities across cultures and traditions and lineages, even across time? And what can we discover about what it means to be human and what's possible as a human being? And integral theory was really born out of doing that exercise. I mean, Ken is like a, a polymath and genius and has just spent uh, years and decades uh, doing that research, you know, looking at these these time periods, these epics, these traditions, and and sorting through what are the patterns of make it that make us human and what's possible for all of us. And so, the simplest way I've learned to distill what he's discovered, and then what in my own work I've tried to build upon and and articulate and share, is using a really simple phrase. And what's so cool about this phrase is that. Um, I started using it in 2010, Ken started using it, and then it's like become this popular thing within sort of pop spirituality. But it actually has really deep roots, so I don't want it to be um, sort of pushed to the side because it's become somewhat popular in certain regards. And that's that um, integral theory can be summed up into, into four, four, four different sets of terms. So we say wake up, grow up, clean up, and show up. Maybe I'll just take a moment to articulate what each of these are because I think it's, it's useful. So in general, the great wisdom traditions have always spoken about what it means to wake up to the true nature of reality, waking up to a sense of non-separateness from self, other, world, to a sense of non-dual awareness. And that basic quality of waking up is something that we can see across multiple different traditions, across multiple different lineages of practice. And integral theory suggests that that's one of the fundamental keys to being human is learning about awakening and learning how to stabilize that awakening in your own direct experience. That's just the mention of waking up. Yes. And, and just for clarification's sake, what is non-dual awareness? Yeah. Okay. Sure. So we tend to, in our everyday experience, separate our experience into a subject and an object. That means that there is a viewer and then that which is viewed. So as we sit here right now across from each other, it seems like there's Sam who seems to be looking out from the inside of his own head behind his eyes at a world that's out there. That's our usual experience. So there's a Dustin in here. As we do particular meditation practice that give us the opportunity to inquire and inquire into the nature of that self, that viewer that seems to be looking out, we actually start to find that it's not as solid as we thought. That it's not as real and and um, and entity-like as we once thought. So what starts to happen as we examine where the source of that viewer comes from is that we start to deconstruct all the ways we create separation. And we start to realize that that, that sense of self or that I that we thought was in here actually is a deeper awareness that actually doesn't have a location, but actually is open and available everywhere. And that the entire entirety of our experience actually arises inside of that openness rather than outside of our individual separate self. So we begin to collapse this sort of inside and outside dichotomy. And so when there's no more inside and outside, and when there's no more distinct separation between self and other, or between subject and object, we sometimes refer to that as, as non-dual. And non-duality transcends and includes duality. So non-duality isn't something that we hold up separate and against duality as some kind of dichotomy. But the type of realization we're talking about when we talk about waking up is one that's 
open, available, but also fully able to participate in this relative reality to the fullest extent. And it's the balance between those two that we just grab when we talk about waking up. So waking up is the first dimension. And the second dimension is what we call growing up. You know, and there's many different ways that we can speak about growing up from developmental science. And we can look at the great developmental psychologists and different stages that they lay out that human beings move through. And we can look at development as it moves through cognitive development or through our moral or emotional development. We can look at it how it grows through spiritual development. But regardless of the domain that we're looking at of how we grow up, growing up moves through three basic phases. And um, sometimes we say three in the most simplest side of things. Sometimes we say 12 or 20 different levels of development. But I'm going to give you three just to give the listener a sort of sense of what we're talking about. You know, I have two kids and one of them's one and one of them's five. And in watching them grow over time, we can see such a basic shift where once my daughter turned about five years old, I could see her starting to develop some subtle qualities of empathy. So she moved from an egocentric perspective where she was sort of only in her own world, only able to take the view of her own perspective to what we could call uh, an ethnocentric perspective where she could take the view of others within her sort of family context and she could have care and concern for us as parents or her sister. And that shift was so amazing. We as human beings, if, if we're given the opportunity to grow, naturally move from an egocentric to an ethnocentric worldview, which means that we move from only caring about ourselves as children to maybe a view where we care about our tribe, our family, our group, our particular you know, religious sect, whatever it might be, whatever our cultural identity is. And if we're given the opportunity and given the right resources, we can actually continue to grow up to more of a world-centric view where we're not limited to the orientation of our own culture or religious system or sort of family or tribe, but we begin to recognize that all human beings are of great concern and are all human beings are people we can care about deeply. So that's the most basic sense of what it means to shift worldviews from egocentric to ethnocentric to worldcentric. Sometimes we say cosmocentric beyond that. But there's a lot more scientific and sophisticated ways we can talk about it, but I think just keeping it simple, that's one way. But the reason that's important is that even as we wake up to the sense of non-duality, that waking up is naturally interpreted through the lens of growing up that we've done. So even if I have this open awareness that's non-dual and no inside and outside, if I'm still stuck in an ethnocentric worldview where I think my particular brand of religion or my particular tribe is actually somehow more important, then the views that I espouse and the ways that I teach and the way that I share with the world is going to be actually embedded within that worldview. So I might actually, so we, we often use the example of a, a religious extremist. A religious extremist might have a genuine opening to some deeper awareness. They might have some genuine qualities of some spiritual experience that might be close to waking up or at least along that spectrum. But often what happens is that that experience is interpreted through this ethnocentric lens. So rather than having that experience sort of open them to the grandeur of, of sort of connected to all human beings, what sometimes happens is that the, their worldview, based on an authentic experience, is actually reinforced. They become even more of an extremist as it's interpreted through that ethnocentric level of growing up. So we say that any sort of truly integral spiritual tradition today would have to include waking up and growing up. Both these dimensions are critical. We can't leave any one of them out. And again, we can look at that spectrum of growing up in much more sophisticated ways, which I've done in many of my, my books and my writing, and Wilbur has certainly done too. So the third dimension is cleaning up. And cleaning up has to do with exploring our own psychological shadow. So no matter how much we're awake, 
and how much we've grown up, there are still dimensions of our being that are left in our unconscious. Part of traumatic experiences, a part of ourselves that we've split off and we haven't been able to integrate into our lives. And so a key part of this journey is to really look with an innocent and open mind at all the parts of ourselves that maybe we're scared to look at, the parts of ourselves that maybe need deeper healing or support. And so cleaning up is all about that psychological integration, the psychological healing. And again, the reason that this is so important is because you could have an authentic awakening. Maybe you could even be fairly, you know, world-centric kind of human being, yeah. but you might have these massive shadows. I mean, like the that, spiritual bypass we talked totally, about. Totally. Absolutely. And these might these shadows might come out in particular ways that actually jeopardize our whole life, career, other people. And, um, you know, with the massive flow happening with Me Too and all the various uh, spiritual teachers and, and others in authority who are being called out for all these sexual shadows, I mean, we're seeing why cleaning up is so important. Can't be left out. So at a minimum, waking up, growing up, cleaning up. But then we say, but you know, if we left it just with that, it would turn into this like narcissistic swamp of privileged people doing practice. And so it can't stop there. We have to add showing up because this is actually about how we're impacting the world, how we're coming into contact with other human beings and how we're influencing them in a positive way, how we're influencing the world in a positive way. And so this dimension of showing up is absolutely fundamental because it taps into the true purpose for being here, of how we're going to engage in action in the world. And so ultimately, I'd say integral theory is summed up by saying we have to wake up, grow up, clean up, and show up. And if we leave any one of those dimensions out, then we're missing a core component of what it means to be human. And what's so cool about integral theory and what I think really makes me so excited about it is that the integral lens is something that can be applied to any spiritual tradition, any spiritual practice. So it in itself is like a universal donor. It doesn't require any belief systems in itself. It's simply a frame. It's like I had one friend describe it as like, it's like the dark matter that can hold stars in its you know, field. So how cool is that? Like, how do we develop the most coherent and comprehensive dark matter so that any stars, any suns, any constellations can actually hold their form and be enhanced and brightened by that backdrop? And to me, that's super inspiring. That's one of the reasons I got really into Wilbur's work. Thank you so much for that uh, explanation. That's, I was really feeling a lot of clarity in my body as I, um, as I listened to that. And yeah, it was a lot of food for thought. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Sam. Have you always been interested in, in meditation? Because you didn't medi- mention meditation as a deep part of the integral uh, work. Is that something that you've brought in from the outside? You know, Ken, Ken is a deep practitioner. You know, most people know him as a theorist, but I mean, he's a, he's a, you know, in the best sense of the word, he's a hermit practitioner yogi who also writes books. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so meditation was always something that, you know, he and I didn't practice together, but we've both um, practiced individually and mutually recognized how fundamental meditation is to the entire path. There are three major categories of spiritual practice that relate to the base perspectives that we use as human beings. So we all use first person, second person, and third person perspectives. And what that means is that we use perspectives that relate to self or I, second person and I, thou, or relational perspectives and perspectives that relate to it. So I, we, and it. This is basic integral theory. But what that means when it's translated into into real um, everyday spiritual practice is what I call uh, prayer which is a second-person relational practice, meditation, which is a first-person introspection practice, and contemplation, which is the third-person it practice. And I find that these three dimensions are really the, the fundamental roots of what it means to live and act in a transformative way. So 
um, many people in many traditions tend to bias towards one of those practices and not the other. Some traditions are biased towards prayer and not towards meditation. Some towards meditation and not towards prayer. Some towards contemplation, which I'd say some of these great scientists are just like, are like mystic contemplatives. You know, they're like just, they're, they're leading themselves into these states of awe about the cosmos through contemplation of it. And so like all these pathways are so fundamental. And I bring it up in this context because, you know, many great thinkers and philosophers are deep practitioners. And although it might show up in a bit different way, like some people are contemplative, some people are meditators, some people are like devout prayer folks, that it really takes a dedication to a path, to one of these perspectives, or to two, or to all of these perspectives, to begin to live a transformative life. And then when we have a transformed life and a transformed mind and transformed heart, what we create in the world is transformative. So it just, it's, it's, it's helpful to recognize how broad the spectrum of practice actually can be, you know, and it's broader than that. I want to ask you a little bit about your um, your teaching practice. You teach at, at Stanford, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think is the one of the main stumbling blocks that your students have when you present them with the the work of your of your courses? Great. So I'll give you one or two examples just to bring it home into something concrete. One of the classes that I teach is on meditation and technology, and our culture is in such an interesting moment where. People actually trust technology. Not everyone, some people. Some people trust technology more than they trust themselves. And what that means is that if you give somebody a, um, a headset, like the Muse headset, for example, which we give our students, and... Would you describe what the Muse headset yeah, is? Yeah, sure, That's sure, it. sure. So um, for those of you who don't know, there's all these amazing intersections between technology and meditation. Uh, the Muse headset, which is a great headset, and, Um, happy to plug it because our students like it and they get a lot of benefit from it, Um, is a headset that actually monitors the um, ways in which our brain changes during contemplative or meditative states. So what it does is gives you direct feedback. So when you're concentrated, there's a particular sound that the headset emits into your ears connected through your phone. Uh, If you're distracted, there's a different sound that it emits. If you're um, distracted but then recover, it tracks it. So this headset has the capacity to actually study what's happening in our brain through the uh, frequencies that our brain emits. And what it does, and where I was going with the point, is that um, students, if you give them a device that they can look at and they can wear and they can see on their phone, okay, my phone is telling me that I'm concentrated, then they trust it. And I think that is amazing. It's so skillful to be have this opportunity where we can give people technology that then reinforces what they probably know if they were just going to trust themselves. So I have to say what's so amazing is that we have the opportunity right now to give people training wheels and technology like on-ramps into spiritual practice. So what this class, what we, give, we give them, I don't know, six or seven different new cutting-edge devices. We let them take them home. They practice with them every week. They journal with them. They come back and they share as a group what it was like. And what I always love to do is at the end of the class, at the beginning of the class, I ask like who already has a meditation practice or who's meditated. And the first thing that shocks me is that almost everybody has at least tried meditation. And that's so different than like even when I was in undergraduate school, like it was weird to meditate. I was so weird to meditate. I like everybody raises their hand. So it's great. So people meditate. And I say, who has a regular practice? And, you know, three or four people in class have a regular practice, which is more to be expected. But by the end of class, I always check back in. I'm like, okay, like we've been meditating now for a whole quarter. 
um, who's going to continue a practice? And like, at least aspirationally, almost everybody raises their hand because they've received so much benefit. But then I check who's going to continue with the devices and who's just going to meditate on their own. And what's actually really encouraging in a certain way is that the majority of people are going to continue without the devices. And so what that tells me is that there's just this hump that sometimes people have to get over. And technology serves as this amazing vehicle to both encourage and inspire and give people some empirical evidence that it's working, at which point they start to feel the benefit and they don't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, so that's one side of the street. The other side of the street is the street like that, that I know you've interviewed Mikey Siegel. Mikey Siegel and I are exploring together here at Esalen and elsewhere, which is can technology enhance the meditative experience in individually or in groups? I think that's a really fascinating inquiry, but that's a different inquiry than we have in the class. The class is more I see technology as an on-ramp. Um, so I think if you're asking about sort of the, the blocks or the problems or what do we what do we find in students, it's that um, there's so much dependency on technology, it's used now as a way to sort of turn them on to things, and there's not enough trust in themselves. But with a very short, quarter-long class, I think that we see that thing kind of shifting. What about your own journey with, with meditation? Were there, were there points along your path where you completely got off of it? I know that there was a, there was a time when you went to an ashram in India and uh, aspiring to be a monk, so there must have, yeah. must have been base, various levels. My journey, you know, uh, some people on the listening to the podcast may have heard some of this, but, you know, for those of you who haven't, like, I'm an extremist by nature. You know, I'm just fortunate that I was born into this, like, postmodern integral extremist rather than sort of some sort of more rigid structure because I'm a dangerous dude. I just follow with passion my heart, like what it tells me to do. So the first thing that I did, which is sort of in the extreme, is that after undergraduate school, I moved to Paris. And I moved to Paris to uh, work in the fashion industry. What was your interest in fashion or what were you doing? It's really, it's so, like part of me is embarrassed, but it's so great because I just learned to claim all of myself. So I'm going to just share it all with you and all with the listener. Hopefully it's inspiring and even if it's embarrassing. So I had two motivations to go to Paris. My first motivation was the more noble one. And the more noble motivation was that I, I began to like look at the landscape. You know, I've been, I've been practicing, I've been meditating, I've been studying spirituality. And as I looked at the global landscape, I realized that for whatever reason, celebrities and supermodels had become these new idols and icons of our culture. It was like the new gods and goddesses. And I thought, oh, well, if I can sort of develop relationships and engage at that level of influence and culture and society, and I can turn people on to spirituality and meditation and the transformation of consciousness, then maybe there will be a trickle-down effect where like, sort of they make it popular and then people can take it really deep. So that was the noble motivation. And I think it was genuine. There was something genuine there in that interest. And then the other motivation was that, you know, I was, I was 22 and it was like, how do I hang out with the most beautiful women in the world? And I was like, oh, I'll go work for a modeling agency and hang out with supermodels all day in Paris. That sounds amazing. So both those impulses were so real in me. And I often joke that, you know, I, I had t- tons of success uh, with the second, but no success <laughs> with the trickle down consciousness theory. So, you know, it, did not, it, didn't, it didn't end up working out. So I, very quickly, I learned that that was not the right environment for me to really go deep and to serve and to offer my deepest gifts. And um, I left Paris to the opposite extreme to go become a monk in India. Mm. So extremist by nature. So I went from like the, the, like, the like most exciting fun parties in Paris and nightlife and hang out like these really, uh, uh, hilariously superficial crowds to like deep contemplative study of like ancient Vedantic texts and waking up at four in the morning and practicing and studying. And where were you? 
Um, I was in between uh, Mumbai and Pune in a city called Lenavala, a place called Vedanta Academy. I had met a teacher that I felt really inspired by. I'd been reading his work. He invited me to come stay there when I was in New York for a period. Um, but long story short, that was like a total disaster too. You know, it's like I learned through extreme. So being fully disengaged from the world and being fully in the world in Paris, being fully disengaged in the world in India, neither one of those was the path for me. There had to be some middle way. And it was around that time that I wrote Wilbur a letter and I said, I'd like to come work for you. There's got to be some, some way I can engage in the world from a deeply authentic place and um, find some sort of path that splits the middle. So he invited me to come out to Boulder and that was when I first started working with Wilbur. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, after that time. And what about the... Meditation. meditation. <laughs> so let me, so let me tell you about yeah, it. Yeah. So your question was about meditation, and I, I got, went on a tangential sort of conversation because it felt, it felt inauthentic for me not to share the full spectrum of the extremes and natures that I live by. So meditation was always a thread through that whole process. Um, I first was introduced to meditation through uh, TM, Transcendental Meditation. I was introduced to that when I was 18, and I was in undergraduate school. And then uh, very quickly um, felt such a reson resonance with that, that tradition, but also started going really deep into yoga. And so I started practicing Kundalini yoga in particular, and then Ashtanga and Anirsara and um, began teaching yoga. And so there was a whole process there where meditation and yoga were really the pillars of my own practice, meditation, yoga, and study were the three pillars. And as it began to evolve and develop, I was introduced to Wilbur. He introduced me to Dzogchen teachings and some of the teachings of the Tibetans for the first time. And I really saw the depth there. So I was finding this balance between sort of deep Hindu teachings around meditation and Tibetan teachings. And then when I was in graduate school is when I met Dan Brown, who became really my hardcore and primary meditation teacher. And it was through Dan's work that I realized the precision of instruction possible through meditation, where it's not just like sit and follow your breath, but there's 40 or 50 progressive meditations that can unfold, each one with a different tweak, that lead people from an ordinary awareness into a more awakened awareness. And for me, knowing that that path had been outlined and traversed by so many people for thousands of years, and that all the little problems that can come up along the way of the meditative path um, had been sort of sorted through and discussed and there were antidotes to every single problem, I just became enraptured with the fact that that was possible. And so it was like, you know, in my extreme nature, it was like, that's what I'm giving my life to. It was like really studying that deeply and then using all of this other sort of clothing or robes of, of science and technology and religious studies and integral theory as the ways in which we can dress up those deeper teachings to then serve in different contexts. But really at the heart, it's about awakening and practicing and finding a way to get at the heart of that first dimension of integral theory, which is waking up. Mm. And then everything else, the growing up, cleaning up, and the showing up sort of revolve around that. But for me, that's the, that's the heart of the matter. Mm -hmm. Would you give any advice to people uh, who might be listening to this podcast who have tried to meditate and have just, it just hasn't stuck for one reason or another? Definitely. So the first thing, I mean, so much advice. Right. I'm going to give a little a little bit, like a little nibble of advice. And there's so much out there and so many good people that I would trust to give advice. But a couple nibbles. So first is that um, motivation matters. You have to know why you're practicing. So many people today are practicing simply for the uh, reduction of anxiety or reduction of stress. And that's an OK motivation. But as soon as you're not stressed or don't have anxiety, there's no reason to meditate. And so it's really valuable to have a motivation that's even deeper than that. 
And a motivation that could be deeper than that is to really look at what's the heart of these meditative traditions. Like, what do they say is possible for you as a human being when you meditate? And these traditions say that it's possible to wake up. It's possible to wake up to the true nature of reality and to come to see that reality in such a way that it transforms your life and who you are in the world and how you impact the world. And so for me, coming into the motivation around awakening and awakening not just for yourself, but so that you can be of benefit and contribute to the greater social good, to me, that's a much more positive motivation that is has just more juice and more energy behind it to sustain people. So first is look at your motivation for meditating. If it's a motivation that's sort of a little bit lightweight, then as soon as that need isn't there, you're not going to have any motivation anymore. But when you set it as something like deep, like realize the nature of what it means to be human and realize my own sort of divinity as that integrates with human being, you know, being human, that's a little bit more motivating for some people was for me, like taking it all the way. The second on a very practical level is try to meditate at the same time every day. Um, Create a space in your life or a space in your home where you can dedicate it, even if it's a little tiny corner corner of your bedroom or corner of a room and just say that's my sacred space for meditation and every day at the same time that's where I'm going to go sometimes what happens that makes it hard for people to get into routine is that they're sort of always trying it in a different space or they're always meditating at a different time sometimes in morning sometimes at night sometimes it's lunch and it's like they're trying to fit meditation into their life anytime in my experience you try to fit meditation into your life you never quite have time for it so it's more about building your life around meditation so then it says, then, then it really comes down to what are your priorities? What are you prioritizing in your life? And if you really want to commit to meditating, if you really want to commit to getting on this bus that's labeled awakening, and you want to commit to doing the practice that it was required to uh, discover that, that true nature, then uh, making it priority and building your life around it is the best way to support that. So same time every day, same place, know your priorities. What I used to do personally is that I would meditate first thing I woke up and last thing before I went to bed every single day. And, um, if I didn't, like if I was sleep, like falling asleep at night or if I had been out with friends or if I was doing something else and I hadn't meditated, it was like, that was my priority. I'd sit up immediately and I'd finish and complete a meditation at night or I wouldn't allow myself. I would always meditate in bed with a pillow under my hips, but like I wouldn't allow myself to get out of bed until I meditated. So it really became the bookend of life for me. Mm -hmm. That practice was transformational for me because I didn't let myself fall asleep or get out of bed without doing the practice and just helped me orient my priorities in a really direct way. Um, well, let's talk about being a father. How has, how has being a father shaped your thoughts on your work, your purpose, and what you want to give to the world, the way you want the world to be for your daughters? I don't know if anybody in, in the podcast has ever asked me about being a father, and it is so uh, nourishing to receive that question. So thank you. Uh, being a father is nothing like I imagined being a father would be. Are you a father, Sam? No. No. Maybe one day. Maybe one. It's c- so crazy. Like, first of all, the birth process is so crazy. We don't talk about it in our culture. We take birth and we sort of put it in these little rooms or, you know, tubs and birthing centers and we keep it separate from society. But, like, birth is anybody who's been through birth, who's listening to this podcast, either been through birth as a birth giver or witnessed the birth, knows that it is like the most intense human experience like women are taken to their edge of possibility and then beyond it and they create life like life comes through them it's so magical and like as a as a husband like in my masculine it was there was like nothing i could do i had to enter into my feminine of surrender just like support surrender because there was nothing that i could do so just starting with fatherhood at the birth like that moment of like that process was so incredibly transformative for me and then it just keeps going like 
people, I think I thought that like being a parent was sort of all easy, all love. And like, there's so much love and there is so much joy and ease. And it's so hard. I have had to come face to face with all of the parts of myself that would rather just like stay in bed and sleep or, um, you know, don't feel like, you know, driving a kid somewhere. Don't just all the parts of me that don't feel like serving. I've had to look at them because that's not an option as a parent. There's something bigger than you. And like, I think my, you know, some of my narcissism has just been crushed and it's been thrown in my face and such, and what just in such a beautiful way, it's just been shown to me in a sense that I realized that I have to uh, go deeper in my own practice. I have to go deeper into my own shadow. I have to go deeper into all the ways in which I'd rather just turn off from other human beings and just stay open and stay connected. So that's been so positive, so good, so wonderful, but not easy, not easy at all. So the kind of world that I want for my children, I mean, I'm one of the things that I'm working on now is a, a writing project where I'm writing letters to my daughters and it's like, oh, because I've all, all my books are like so uh, like abstract and obscure and like the normal person, unless they're super nerdy and geeky and into spirituality, is not going to read them. So, you know, one of the things my father always said to me, he's like, you got to dumb it down and like make it, you know, simple for people. So I thought, OK, how can I make my writing? How can I take some of this like massive synthesizing and make it in bite sized pieces for people? And I realized, oh, like, I'll just imagine that I'm writing to my daughters. I'm writing them letters. And in those letters, I'm just trying to share with them like what I think it's important for them to know about life, about reality, about their own minds, about their own hearts, about their bodies, about their relationships. And so um, for me, like, what do I want them to inherit or what's the world that I think I want for them? I would love us to live in a culture where we begin to reprioritize what's most important, where we as a culture learn what to take refuge in. So just like I had to learn sort of, oh, it's not in money and it's not in uh, sexuality or power or it's not even in service. Ultimately, refuge is the only thing we're taking refuge in is the true nature of our own realization and what that means. And then it trickles down into all these other domains. But like, if that's not at the pillar, if self-transcendence isn't really the highest objective, then everything else is sort of out of line. And our culture right now is so confused. We don't live in a wisdom culture at the moment. Um, One of the things I love about Esalen, it's like helping people try to reorient a bit towards wisdom, towards depth. And it always has been. Like that's part of the gift of this particular land, this particular place, is that reorientation. But I would say that fundamentally, what I hope for them, my daughters, what I hope for all the generations to come, is that we as a culture begin to reprioritize what we take refuge in so that we can hold this quality of true transformation, realization, highest, and then that will trickle out into all of the different systems and ways that we are with each other and with the world. So may that be the case. Thank you. Man, I love this idea of writing to your daughters. That is amazing idea. I want to ask you to, um, if you have it in you, to, to lead us in a, um, a meditation. And that will be the end. So I'll I'll thank you right now so much for being an inspiring um, person to talk to. And I I certainly look forward to exploring more of your work, Dustin. Great. Um, I think what I'd like to do for this particular practice is take us into just a gentle journey into our bodies. I find that many times people who practice meditation um, sometimes are disconnected from their physical bodies, from their physical beings. 
and um, there are some great meditation teachers out there who are deeply working with the body. You know, I want to just honor Reggie Ray and his whole line and dear friend of mine, John Churchill, who's working with the body. And, you know, there are definitely teachers who are working with the body in a very direct way. But I would say that for the most part, unless we're working with the body, um, it's sometimes easy to get trapped in conceptualization. It's easy to get trapped in the mind, it's easy to get trapped in some sort of abstract. But when we're working with the body, we can connect with our direct experience. And our direct experience is really the heart of the way into the present moment and to the eternal moment. And so that's what we'll do. It's a very simple practice with the body. So find a position where you can sit up straight. And I'll begin by just saying that posture matters. That posture is our first expression of our intention and our motivation. So there's a, a Tibetan teacher who came to the West named Trungpa Rinpoche. And he had a very simple way to point out posture instruction that I received from a student of his. And it's simply to sit up straight and allow the straight spine to represent fearlessness. And then allow the whole front of your body to be soft and open. And that soft and open front body represents gentleness. And so we have the fearlessness of the straight spine, a quality of facing everything. And we have the gentleness, the soft and open front body as a quality of being curious and receptive compassionate. And then take your hands and place them on your knees. And then just feel all the points of contact as your hands press against your knees. So you might feel a gentle pressure or weight. and just continue to feel your hands against your knees. So this is the first stage of this particular practice. You can stay here if you'd like, just continuing to feel your hands against your knees. Or if you'd like to come along to stage two, just keep following my voice. So stage two. Just continue to notice this feeling of your hands against your knees. And then notice the fact that wherever you're feeling, you're also aware. So there's an awareness feeling that arises together. So you're simply directing your attention to the awareness feeling of your hands against your knees. And then continue to feel your hands against your knees. And then allow this field of awareness feeling to expand so it includes the pressure as you sit against your chair or cushion. So you're feeling your sitting bones and your hands and the knees at the same time. Like one field of feeling awareness.
you're feeling your hands against your knees and feeling your sitting bones against your chair or cushion, like one field of feeling awareness. So at first you might toggle back and forth between your hands and your sitting bones, jumping from one to the next. But eventually as you master stage two, you just feel both sets of sensations simultaneously, like one field of feeling. Feeling awareness. Good, and for today's practice, we'll just take it one more step. So you can stay here, feeling your hands against your knees and the sitting bones in the cushion, like one field of feeling awareness. Or you can follow me to the next step. So step three. Feel your whole body now. And feel your whole body like one field of feeling awareness. So feel your whole body all at once, like one field of feeling awareness. So you're not jumping around from part to part, from your head to your arm to your foot, but feel the whole body like one field of feeling. It's like your body is radiating with a quality of feeling awareness. And you can stay with this practice for as long as you'd like, just continuing to feel your whole body like one field of feeling awareness. And there are progressive stages leading from this particular space, but this is a perfectly appropriate practice to begin with and to close our evening with here. So stay for as long as you'd like in this space. And when you're ready to bring it to a close, you can take a deep inhale into your belly and exhale out. And then when the timing's right for you, you can open your eyes and bring the meditation to a close. And before we sign off tonight, just may we dedicate this very simple practice to the realization of our deepest nature. And may we realize that deeper nature of our own mind so that we can be of positive benefit and have impact. And may any benefit that's been generated thus far tonight just spread out to all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldyn Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to subscribe, rate us, and review. You can also find all of our episodes at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. Thank you so much for your contributions to our world.